So thank you for being here, the few, the proud, the Marines. We miss our young people and all the group that went there, but uh, Eastern Meadows is being blessed by their presence uh, tonight. I'm so glad that our youth have a chance to get together monthly or beyond that to with other youth in town and beyond that. Uh, if you grew up in a mission, mission church like I did, uh, you saw other people of your age about every three years, <laughs> and suddenly you realize, oh, there's somebody my age that actually shares faith and my experience too, so it's a, it's a blessing, and uh, those of you that have grown up with it, you know, and those of you who didn't grow up with it, uh, surely you know the blessing that it is. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be uh, going there and reading several verses in a few minutes. So I'm asking you in anticipation of that, and it won't be on the screen. I actually won't have it. And uh, let me go ahead and say, this is different. This is different. I promise, no archaeology tonight, no pictures, no references to cultural history. I'm stepping out of my comfort zone, so I'm in big trouble. Let's put it that way. <laughs> this is a, a, a lesson. Um, derived from the current Bible class on Sunday mornings that uh, I'm privileged to be in. And the participants in it, uh, studying the book of Genesis, are just remarkable in their comments. And, and I am inadequate to the task. And, and this is more of a study. There's a difference between teaching and preaching. And um, maybe I'll uh, be capable of a little less passion because this is a more technical study. And so I guess in the end of it all, I'd like for you to be hoping that you would go home tonight or this week and be encouraged to read not the whole book of Genesis again, but maybe part of it, maybe the beginning of it, and then to search for something there that's been all along uh, and that uh, is a, a source of confidence, assurance that we have in the scriptures that are available to us. The reading that's on the screen that Daniel shared is from John chapter 5 and verse 39. Jesus, in one of his many teaching moments, said the following to his Jewish audience at the time. And to the Jewish audience, the scriptures were the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And he said this, You search the scriptures, capital S, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. And I'd like for you to focus on the last part because that's what drove me to this more technical lesson. It is they, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. Let me make a comment real quick. There are in this world many people that do not turn to these scriptures to find instructions for life or from the divine. The Buddhist go to uh, their scriptures. The Hindu, a large presence in our world, go to the Vedas and uh, the Bhagavad Gita. And while I can't read them in the original language, I can read them in translation. And they consider other kinds of writings to be the source of wisdom and instruction for life and living and such like that. But, um, but we, we stand on we study from, we make our own, these scriptures. And it is a connection between the first book 
of the Bible, our scriptures, and the Christ that I'd like to draw tonight. And it is technical, so forgive me. Forgive me. It uh, will, at times, I will make references to many scriptures, and for those, oh, wonderful people that I see that take notes and lessons, and God bless you, I'm going to drive you nuts tonight. <laughs> because my slides are not many, but I have way too many references in there. But to tell you, this is more of a, a, technical, a technical lesson. We can stand on our scriptures, which are not the Buddhist and not the Hindu and not the Quran. Our scriptures are, is a term that refers to 66 books written by approximately 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years from Moses all the way to John, 15 centuries approximately, over three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, written in two languages as you and I had them, Hebrew, the Old Testament, and Greek, the New, but Matthew may have been in Aramaic before it was translated. The authors came from all walks of life, all kinds of places. Some were priests, some were physicians like Luke, some were farmers, some were fishermen, some were shepherds, some were scholars, some were kings, some were conquerors, some were prisoners, some were in prison for a while. A multitude of massive number of big life-affirming, asserting issues are all contained in this amazing book called the Bible. There are those who say that it was put together, it was concocted. They don't believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. They're wrong. They don't have evidence for that, but they say it was put together in the 6th century before Christ during the exile period. They say it's more of a concocted a conspiracy, so to speak, in many ways. But what resonates, if you actually will go beyond just what is said without evidence, is that those scriptures that we have have an amazing to, to absolutely staggering consistency. And what I'd like to highlight tonight, just for a few minutes, is the, the line to be drawn between the book of Genesis and the Christ. Just one of hundreds of lines, connections. I want you to connect the dots. In one instance, kind of like I've had to do in a study of, of uh, Genesis that we began in our Sunday morning class. No Old Testament writer criticizes another. That's amazing by itself. <laughs> there are no issues of... Uh, uh, contradictory teaching in the scriptures. There is no author that condemns another one. There is Peter that says that Paul's sometimes hard to understand, but uh, surely we can identify with that. Agreement. That's what's amazing. How on earth do 40 authors over 15 centuries find agreement? If God's not in the picture, how on earth? And how on earth would there be a line drawn in Genesis to the Christ? How on earth would that be possible? You already know what the central theme of the Bible, that which connects all the dots in these 66 books is. It's all about redemption, redeemer, the redemption of man. That would be you, that would be me, from the problem that we truly have, which is not what the world thinks is our problem. Our problem is sin. And by the way, the, the, the connecting line between all of the books of the Bible, 
with that issue, which is how do you fix the biggest thing that's broken with the humankind? It is, well, the, the term that you're looking for is Christ. That's the term. That's the solution to the problem. The only major problem that is the fountainhead of all the problems that we've got is called sin and the one to fix it from the beginning of the narrative to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, is the Christ, the Christ. Genesis 3, of course, that's what we'll read in just a few minutes. That's where things fall apart. It's the fall. And it's from that time that the world in which we live in, which refers, to, of course, to human nature and human beings, but, but also has affected the world that we live in. It's cursed with the sin. And, and then there's that book of Revelation. And maybe next time a lesson should be on that so I can draw a lesson between the beginning and the end, the beginning of our scriptures and the end of our scriptures, the home in heaven. But I've talked about heaven last time, so I can't do that. But yes, the new Jerusalem a home in heaven, spiritual world, where we will be blessed without sin because of the Christ. You see, it was Christ himself, 20 centuries ago, that pointed back, you need to read Genesis, you need to read Moses. Now, Genesis is not the only book by Moses. There's the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the, but, but let's start with Genesis, let's start there. What, is, what does Genesis have to do with with uh, the Christ. He will say to his Jewish audience over and over again, have you not read in the book of Moses, Jesus, if he was just a man and not the son of God, well, he had done a good job of memorizing in his little village of Nazareth in his synagogue training, the Mosaic law, because he quoted it by memory. Have you not read in the book of Moses, he said often to his audiences? And then again, he says, for Moses said, and he, well, he is continually pointing back to those Jews who revered Moses. Do you not remember what Moses said? So I am listening today. I'm his audience. And he's saying, could you look back to Moses? In John chapter 5, verse 46, maybe you recall this instance. He says, if you believed Moses, he's talking, of course, to his Jewish audience, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. What? That's what got me started on this technical study. He wrote about me? Moses wrote about you? Where? How? How's that play out? Of course, maybe you did recall another passage that I, that I uh, remembered in connection with that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy. I came to fulfill. And that, of course, by itself is a lesson. Fulfill. What do you mean fulfill? What does that mean? I came. You need to listen to Moses. Moses talked about me. Christ in Genesis. That's where the title of my lesson comes. But I'm a modern reader, and so are you. And I struggle. And I'm not a, a Jew by origin, and the Old Testament is less familiar to me than the new. And so I struggle to comprehend the disparate parts. There are some of you that have imbued yourself with the narratives, the stories, the, the lives of, of the patriarchs from Abraham to, to, yes, Joseph, that are the narratives of the lives contained in the 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. 
And maybe you are more capable than I to find the unity, to to see the line that is drawn in these various narratives because you know those stories better than I do. I'm trying to catch up with you if you know those stories well. But what I am aware of is not only do I, would I like to know the details of all those narratives that are contained in inspired scripture, God wanted me to have those. He had Moses write them down for me. I want to know what, is the, the, what are the unifying elements, the unifying elephants. What is the big picture of Genesis? I want to know the details, but I want to know the big picture. And tonight, just one, one line that I think uh, what I'm of course, convinced of, and if nothing else, of tonight's lesson is meaningful to you, maybe this. Yes, the three important steps, three important ideas, three important things about humanity and our personal condition tonight is we were created by God. We messed up. We mess up. But God made a plan for regeneration. And there they are. Put them in whatever words you want. It's called generation, degeneration, and regeneration, or it's called creation, fall, and there's that word. The Messiah came to redeem. He's the answer to everything. He's that the thread that ties together everything that's contained in the scriptures that you and I have from the one true God. It's about him. It's about the, the Christ. But is Christ truly in the Genesis? Is he truly there? Um, You know, I'm going to suggest tonight some types of Christ in Genesis, and maybe they're not going to be meaningful to you. That's okay if they're not. Maybe you don't see where I'm going. Because sometimes when you look in those 50 chapters, looking for Christ in those stories can, can feel like, well, uh, there's the illustrations. It's like a guessing game sometimes. Is it really Christ that's meant to be echoed here? Is it? It's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. That's the expression we used. For example, I'm going to suggest maybe Joseph. It's the easiest of all the characters of the book of Genesis to be a type for Christ. But there's another question that I have. Why, Moses, did you put those genealogies? Why 11 times did you kind of mark out in a literary format uh, how to put those stories together, which ones to put in, which ones to put out? I know that God is behind the inspiration to organize this whole book, but uh, why? At the heart of our covenant, the New Testament, The gospel of Jesus Christ is the understanding that here's maybe where I can start. The Messiah, the Hebrew word for the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that connects all of the stories and all the writings and all the words that are contained in those 66 books is is about being an heir, a legitimate heir to the throne of David. So I know that they want me to connect Jesus to a thousand years before to David and then the book of Genesis, however, which goes back to the beginning of mankind and definitely to Abraham, but first of that before to Adam. So I'm supposed to draw a line between the Christ and way back to the first man that ever lived on the face of the earth. That's why Matthew and And Luke, two of our four Gospels, have those beginnings of their narratives of the life of Christ that contain all these names. And they pick and choose. 
And they seem to be two different genealogies, but one points back to Adam and the other one points forward to Joseph or Mary. And they are the parents of, yes, you guessed it, the Messiah, the one, the anointed one. There's a line that we're supposed to draw. There's a connection. We're supposed to connect the dots. What begins in the book of Genesis leads to, it's, he's not in there, of course. For David, you're going to have to wait for the, for the book of 1 Samuel. But from Genesis, it's pointing when it ends, its story, pointing forward to David. And, of course, when you get to David, in his uh, hymns and his prophecies, and he, he points forward to the one. And that's, of course, the Christ. Genesis, the book of Genesis, traces a remarkable, not perfect. There are, there's the good and the bad in that narratives too, but in spite of it all, God operates through it all as he draws a line in human genealogies to a family line that begins with Adam and ends with the sons of Jacob and then points to David who points to Jesus and that's where we ultimately always end up. And then John points up to Jesus in the new Jerusalem in the home of heaven says he's preparing a home for you in heaven. We visited that home, heaven, last time in the last lesson that I shared. So Genesis, I find that it leads to David, which leads us to Jesus Christ. Maybe you find it, maybe you don't. But let me start with this kind of first point. We are a people that don't do kingship and kings and queens and royalty. We have abandoned that. We're a democratic republic. There are still political organizations in the world that do. Monarchs, the British, of course, are hanging on to it. But embedded throughout the book of Genesis and leading up to, of course, Christ, the king of the Jews, remember the sign on the cross, remember the question of Pilate to Jesus before he sent him to that cross. Are you a king? And Jesus' reply, you said it. And then the sign that's on the cross. There are, it seems to me, among the expectations of the Christ, the Messiah, the one that will give sense to everything in those 66 books, expectation of royalty. King. King of what? King of a human kingdom? No, 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 no. But all along in the book of Genesis, consider, for example, Abraham was not a king himself, but he rubbed shoulders with some pharaohs of Egypt that are kings. He rubbed shoulder with an uh, interesting kind of mysterious figure called Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, which was the word for Jerusalem, the original Jerusalem, and also priest, high priest of God, by the way, and Abimelech. So Abraham rubs shoulders with kings at the time. And then he is promised by God, see uh, in several chapters of Genesis, Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, God promises over and over again to Abraham, God promises that kings would come from him. But of course, one king is the one that matters the most. Isaac, he blesses Jacob. Maybe you recall that. I'm counting on your Old Testament knowledge tonight because I don't have time to pull them up. I apologize. He blesses Jacob. His words, listen to him, they kind of resound with royal uh, 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 echoes. He says, let the people serve you, says Isaac of Jacob, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brother. May your mother's son bow down before you. We're taught now not to bow down before anybody. 
but there's a there's a, a respect that is given to a royal line and this is pointing to the king of kings prince of peace almighty god this coming summer by the way we're going to be exploring who is jesus and we have 12 speakers that are coming in for our summer series that will be looking at various facets of jesus i hope you look forward to that and one of them is the kingship of jesus one of them one of many there are more than 12 attributes of Jesus, but one of them's that. You know, the Messiah was going to be of royal dynasty. Of royal, you should have royal expectations of him. But what kind of king? Joseph's story that's embedded in, Gen- in the book of Genesis. His dreams are interpreted by his brothers as signifying kingship. Listen to his brothers say it twice. They say to him, are you indeed? Joseph's brothers say to him, to reign over us? When they see him in Egypt, are you to rule over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? Twice they ask it. Genesis chapter 37 verse 8. Royal expectations. Jacob blesses in the book of Genesis using very much what sounds like royal language. There's a scepter, which is a symbol of authority of a king, of course. Listen, Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff come from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. All I discovered was that, wow, there are embedded all along the way some expectations of royalty in the one to whom the book of Genesis ultimately points to completely. Now, there are, I have found among the scholars that know this book better than I, significant Christ in Genesis references when it comes to Joseph. Joseph in particular. Of the ones that I just quoted from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. This Joseph story occupies the last third of the book of Genesis. And uh, the question is truly there, is is Joseph meant for you and I, the reader of the future, to to see him as a type for Christ? When Christ said, look back to Moses, was was he saying, look, embedded there? Here are a couple of things just before I get into specifics about that. There are some positive characteristics, at least one that you can consider in the Joseph narrative that uh, I hope you remember. The integrity. You know what I mean by that, right? He says, no, I'm not going to do that. That's wrong. The integrity of Joseph stands out in his narrative. And uh, maybe that is... One of the many attributes of the Messiah, the king, of course, just one of them. Another royal king that is not in the book of Genesis but will come later, Solomon. You see that that gift that God gave him of wisdom is clearly another one of the attributes of the king of kings, of the Christ, the Messiah, wisdom. Joseph. Do his actions, does his life, what we know of it as recorded there, are his actions a foreshadowing of a much greater salvation? You see, what I do immediately recognize is that Joseph was able, through his influence and power, to save people from a physical famine. They didn't die of starvation. The true king, the true Messiah, not just the vizier of Pharaoh, Saves us, saves all mankind, wants to save all of mankind from not 
uh, physical famine, but spiritual famine, eternal famine, not just a famine, but the famine. Surely I can draw that connection that's there. But there are a bunch of others. Forgive me, here's where note takers go crazy. I'm not going to have time to read them just to refer to them. Maybe you remember. Joseph, do you remember? He was beloved to his father. Do you remember that? And of course, as soon as you say that about Joseph, you remember that about Joseph. I am reminded of the two instances when the voice of God booms from the heavens in the life of Jesus of Nazareth at his baptism which is in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, and in his transfiguration, Matthew 17, and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? Yeah. Does that mean to make me draw a line back to Joseph? Of course, Joseph was hated and rejected by his own brothers. How tragic. And of course, that's the same lot of Jesus. He came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. Joseph's own brothers turn on him. Jesus' own people yell, crucify him, crucify him. Those who should have recognized the Messiah, the Christ, are the ones that reject him, issue a warrant out for his arrest, insist that Pilate put him on the cross, and are there cheering and mocking when he is on that cross. He's hated. That's a common trait between the two. His own brothers plot against him. Of course, that's the, the plot, the, the, the lot of Jesus, too. The Romans are not anti-Jesus. It's the Jews that are anti-Jesus. Figuratively, that happens likewise in between the two narratives. I like this one. Uh, Joseph is lifted from a pit where his brothers put him. Surely you remember that. I once saw a pit in, uh, in uh, Egypt pit where they would throw um, dead animals, the carcasses, or somebody they wanted to keep. And I, I was reminded of this uh, pit that Joseph was put in by his brothers. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's in the first sermon that he speaks after the birth of the church, and he, he, said, he makes reference, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, to God taking the, the one whom they had put on the cross, the Messiah that they had put in, in the pit of death, resurrecting him. And there's this image, like with Joseph, of being taken out of the pit. Of course, Joseph ends up in Egypt among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in his life. And he is received and favored. And we are reminded that in the explosion of the early church, of the way of Jesus of Nazareth, the first 3,120 or 8,000 were, were Jews. But then if you check back at the end of the book of Acts and Acts chapter 28, the majority are not Jews anymore. They're Gentiles. The gospel, the Messiah, his message and his redeeming effect goes to the Gentiles. It goes to the Gentiles. He received a Gentile bride during his rejection. This is another interesting parallel. Maybe it doesn't quite jive as much, but when Paul in his, uh, in his writings of Ephesians chapter 5, when he talks about the, the important relationships, and one of them husband and wife, and he talks about the role of the wife and the important vision of, of the wife within the church, there's this reference to the bride and the bridegroom, and, the, and I find that very interesting in parallel with what Joseph's experience is. One more. Reconciliation finds reconnection with his brethren, with his 11 brothers. 
and then they are blessed through him. And surely, without reading it, you, you know that multiple places in the New Testament, the effect of Jesus the Messiah and the, the Christ reconciling man to God are stressed like Paul does in that letter to the Romans. But let's get this straight. The term Messiah, the Jewish term, since Genesis is in Hebrew, is not there in the book of Genesis. So I'm not trying to find something there that's not there. Linguistically, it's not. Strictly speaking, there is no messianic figure in the book of Genesis. However, I can at least underline this verb or word or suggestion to you. Genesis anticipates. First I said it points, and now I'm saying it anticipates to the coming of someone in the future. And that's, I think, the, one of the great values of this book. Genesis gives clues. It points. It anticipates. It wants you to know that chapter 3 is, is the greatest tragedy in the history of mankind. But, but that's not the end of Genesis. The rest of it is, of course, that the promise that through a future descendant of Eve, the one who's the serpent in the Genesis 3 account and dares to misquote God and then to contradict him. And then we, through our ancestors, Adam and Eve, fell for it. Satan will be defeated. He doesn't win. He loses. You need to know the end of this story. And you need to know that if you're in Christ, if you call Jesus the Messiah, the Christ tonight, well, then, then you have the assurance of the blessings of God that he wanted to give back to all of mankind. But there had to be, there had to be a price paid. There had to be something that played out. This is, this is not just something you can fix with Elmer's glue. This is going to take some serious fixing that only the God of heaven can do. I love this. So you can kind of draw the line, the connection, draw the dots. Adam to Abraham to David to Jesus Christ. Whenever Adam was to Abraham in the 20th century before Christ, to David in the first century before Christ, to Jesus Christ about a thousand years later, to you today. That's the line that we draw. Here are, very quick, I hope they're meaningful, of just a few as I wind down. I like these as a suggestion, again, if they're not meaningful, types of Christ in the book of Genesis. Definitely in Paul, in his letters of 1 Corinthians and Romans, he points to, he uses terminology that says, look, there's Adam and then there's Christ. So Christ, the last Adam, the second man, Christ is the second man, Adam being the first, the man that God created there in the Garden of Eden, the head of the old creation, and then Jesus the Christ as the head of the new creation where things have been fixed in the relationship with God. I like this one. This clearly is there. When you read the story of Adam in Genesis chapter 2, then you should draw a line to Jesus because Paul says so. Number two, maybe this one is not as effective, but I like that there's the story of Jesus, of God creating, of course, woman, the mother of all human beings, 
Eve and, and the fact that the, uh, God establishes marriages. He designs it. He creates man to not be complete. And so Eve is that completeness. And, uh, and uh, she is a suitable helper. And I love how when, uh, especially in Ephesians 5, again, Paul talks about the relationship of Jesus and the church. There's that image of, of man and woman, of bride and, and bridegroom. Uh, maybe I'm making too much of it, but I like that one. Number three, one of the favorite symbols of early Christianity was the Christ as the shepherd and the lamb, the lamb of God, the lamb of God. What's interesting is in Genesis, of course you know this, there's a story of a, an offering that was accepted and one that wasn't. One, Abel's offering, had a slain lamb, and there was blood involved. While Cain's offering didn't have any blood in it. And what we're going to find out in Genesis chapter 9 is that blood is a very important symbol of life. Read Genesis chapter 9 and verse 4. But beyond that, beyond that, the mess that you and I made requires blood. And in the book of Hebrews where the writer goes to the practices of the mosaic tabernacle and temple. It talks about once a year the high priest going in in front of the mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the blood of animals on everything in the Holy of Holies. And now we have a more perfect high priest. We have one that has gone into the Holy of Holies for good forever. The, the, The curtain that was separated us from God. And you couldn't go in there if you were a Jew into the temple, you can go in past that tent. And now the, the, it's been ripped apart. In those hours in which Jesus was on the cross, there was an earthquake, but there was also a 90-foot curtain that just ripped as a symbol of the fact that you can go into the Holy of Holies because his blood, the Christ, sprinkled on your sins. Christ, the Lamb of God. Christ is also a refuge from judgment. That's found as a, maybe a type of Christ in the book of Genesis. You see, you know the story of the great flood, the great deluge, right? And only eight people found. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, Genesis 8, verse 1, God looked down, and it was a mess. It was a mess. The, there's a picture there. Christ is our refuge from judgment. Judgment's coming. God is a righteous judge, a holy, a holy God, and he, his holiness and his righteousness demand judgment on disobedience and treachery and violence and murder and lying. But he's going to protect us like he protected Noah and his family from the judgment to come. He's provided the ark, he's provided the boat. It's called the church. If you're in it, then you're on it. That's what it is to go from point A, where we were about to drown, to point B, which is where we want to go, which is in being under the grace of God. Number five, I already mentioned this one, but I love this one, Christ the high priest. In the book of Hebrews, there's this reference to this strange appearance in the book of Genesis pops in and pops away and his name is Melchizedek and he's both high priest and king of Jerusalem and the Hebrew writer says Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek he's trying to say 
For 15 centuries, there were Arianic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. That was nothing compared to the priesthood of Christ. And the line is drawn by the Hebrew writer between Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and this Melchizedek, who was just put in history, just popped in the book of Genesis, and met Abraham, and Abraham bowed down to him. And lastly, Christ. I love this one. Of course, there's a parallel. Abraham, Isaac, the sacrifice thereof. I'm not going to assume that however old Isaac was, in those three days in which he walked with his dad from wherever they lived to Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, he didn't keep turning around and saying to dad, where's the lamb? Where's the offering? Your dad, you're getting senile. You forgot something. I jest, but really. I don't even want to suppose that when his father started to grab his hands to tie him up, that he had that he reacted violently. It's not in the text. So I'm going to suppose that Isaac let his father tie him up. And that the, you know, the knife was two inches from the juggler vein when God from heaven said, Stop. Stop. You see, Christ the obedient son and willing sacrifice. Doesn't that take you to the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember what Jesus said? Can we skip this? My paraphrase of his words, which are, let this cup pass, right? And then right after to follow, what did Jesus say? But your will be done. Your will be done. Key junctures, it seems to me, and then the lesson's yours. The defeat of the serpent. And I... I'd love to read all of chapter 3, but I'm going to read, please, just for 15. For the sake of time, I have gone longer than I wish to, and I'm pressing on your patience. Look at verse 15. God has discovered Adam and Eve hiding in the garden. Where are you? She did it. She made me do it. Serpent made me do it. And then God speaks to the serpent first. Then he speaks to the woman and he says in verse 15, which is called the Proto-Evangelium, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then look at the last part of verse 15 in particular. Please highlight that one, if nothing else of the lesson. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called by many over the many centuries since it was, it's been read been called the the first instance of the gospel first announcement of the Christ the Messiah the one to come Um, this is a slide that refers to that particular verse Genesis 3 all 15 verses maybe that's what you I could encourage you to read tonight those first 15 verses there but Adam and Eve obeyed a creature that showed up a talking serpent and they obeyed a creature and betrayed the God of heaven. Why do we do that? What what drives us to do that? So God has to punish them. He has to drive them out of his presence and his holiness and the blessings that are in the garden, garden Garden of Eden. But right as you see the immense tragedy of that all you immediately see 
embedded in the very moment when that, that casting out happens. You see that God, in his profound act of grace, he promises. By the way, the serpent is going to be overcome by an offspring of the woman. There's a descendant of Adam and Eve that's going to fix this thing. that You broke God's plan for redemption, Christ, the Messiah. I love also the fact that as God will begin to make promises to Abraham, the father of the faithful, the Hebrew nation, he will again give hope And even in an act like circumcision, there is embedded in it. See, in Genesis chapter 17, the promise. That's not just a physical thing. It's a symbol of something very important. Listen to Genesis 22, where God promises again to Abraham. Your offspring shall possess the gate of of his enemies, and your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so offspring here is not plural. It's actually singular. There's one. You're going to look for one. It's drawing a line. Between Genesis 22 and the Christ. So many centuries later. Interesting is also that there's a term firstborn. That Paul in his letter to the Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 applies to Christ. He calls him the firstborn of all creation. And by the way if you know the Genesis narrative. The concept of firstborn resonates time and time again. It wants to prepare you for what's the firstborn. Or what happens to the firstborn. Something very important about that. So, in conclusion, what on earth does this have to do with me today? I already knew it. I just discover it in Genesis. I rediscover it in Genesis. It's there. God redeems you and I today again from the evils of power, the power of evil and death. And here's the line, not just from people, but think, think uh, geographically now, so to speak. From Eden, Genesis chapter 3, to the tabernacle instituted by God through Moses on Mount Sinai, to the temple built by Solomon about 500 years later, to the church born in approximately 30, 33 A.D., which is what we're in right now so that we can get to the new Jerusalem in heaven. There's the line. And that's what Christ did. That's what Christ does. That's what he wants to do for you tonight. If you're not in Christ, that's what he wants to do. He wants to get you on the boat, get you in the ship, get you out of the flood. Messiah is central to all of this, all of this story, all these lines. So what I discovered is this, and this is my last slide. The story of Genesis is not the story of Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Joseph. It's my story. It's your story. It's our story. That's what it is. We were made. And when God made us, he said, that's very good. We were made by a great God, a good God, a righteous God. And he said, that's very good. But of course, then there's what you and I did maybe today, yesterday, the day before, Maybe tomorrow we sin. And the stain of sin affects everything that we do. It ruins, it, it taints, it, 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 it weakens us. It does. So we can't let it. And so if sin is on your mind, conscious sin, 
Willful sin, I mean, the invitation is going to be yours tonight. You and I need the effect of the Christ, the one that was announced in Genesis and then fully pictured in the Gospels and then celebrated by Paul in Philippians 2, as he says, and God took him back up and he's sitting at the right, throne, right hand of God, the throne in heaven, and the one that is there preparing a home for us in heaven. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. You and I need redemption. You and I need to be morally pure because otherwise we can't stand in the presence of God. And if you're weighted down with sin tonight, then you need to come confess your sin. You need to do it to the church because... We get there through a community of faith. We are the new Israel. We are the new Israel. Christ in the book of Genesis. He's always been there. Would you come as we stand?